If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. If even a fraction of that area that is presently Lawn, an area the size of Washington State, if that was transformed, 10% of it was transformed toward to meadow, that would immediately provide so much more habitat to pollinators and other animals and conserve a significant amount of resources, fossil fuels, chemicals, fertilizers, all these things wouldn't be required on that area. So it might seem like just transforming a single yard into a meadow doesn't really have that big of an impact, but it's really not the case. That was Owen Wormser, the founder of Abound Design and his nonprofit called Local Harmony, which is focused on encouraging community-driven regeneration. Owen's been building landscapes with a focus on sustainability and low-maintenance design since 1998, and his latest book is Lawns into Meadows. There are a lot of people calling for turning our lawns into victory gardens, but that may not be suitable for everyone's lifestyle, or even if you are able to grow some edible plants, that food garden might not take up your entire front or backyard depending on how large of a space you have to work with. The beautiful, low-maintenance, low-cost, and wildlife-friendly alternative is turning your lawn, or if you don't have that space for yourself, helping to turn public green spaces into meadows. And this will be the primary topic of our episode today, which I personally found to be really inspiring because it's all about what we can do within our reach relatively to support restoration and regeneration. So if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in.
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I grew up in a fairly unusual situation in that I was born and raised off the grid in rural Maine, central Maine. So what that entailed was living in a house that didn't have electricity, didn't have a phone until I was 11. We had an outhouse, no running water. We had a hand pump for water. And my parents were essentially back to the landers in the 70s. They were part of a lot of people, a group of a lot of people that moved away from cities and ended up um, living in really rural, simple situations. They grew a lot of their own food. But ultimately, I was surrounded by nature, and it was something that was compatible with me. Maybe that would have been harder for some kids, but that's really where my connection to the natural world and plants and nature and gardening got started. How do you think your upbringing shaped your perspectives on the world differently than most other people who did not get to have that sort of off-grid, back-to-the-land childhood? It had a really profound impact on me in that, for whatever reason, it was, like I said earlier, compatible for me or with me. And what that means is that I was really comfortable living close to nature and living simply. Knowing that allowed me to understand that that always existed and that that was always something that I could go back to at any point in time. And so my belief in sort of human contrived systems and social structures and cultural norms was really different because essentially I was kind of living outside of these things. Uh, I didn't have a TV. And obviously just in general, how I lived didn't fit in with the average lifestyle of, of most Americans. So I never really fit into that that scenario that a lot of people take very seriously and buy into. So it allowed me a lot more freedom and room for experimentation. It's something that I feel is both a blessing and a curse ultimately, but the blessing part is that it's allowed me to kind of just go my own route and not feel maybe some of the same pressures that a lot of people feel. Your latest book is Lawns into Meadows, Growing Regenerative Landscapes. To help us understand the why behind this work, can you first share a bit about the background of how lawns came to be so ubiquitous in the United States and a lot of the Western world, and also how much of our lands and resources they actually take up? Yeah, so starting with the end of that question, they take up an enormous amount of resources. An area the size of Washington State is mowed turf in the United States, according to um, some mapping studies that people did using NASA maps. And... The resources that that are consumed by lawns are massive. There's huge amounts of fertilizer, huge amounts of water, huge amounts of carbon in the form of fossil fuels. And the list is long, and it's not a minor um, impact that they have in that way. The way we ended up here is, like a lot of things historically, a bit happenstance and 
also a little bit of people aspiring to have what they consider sort of a higher quality landscape. So this really got started in Western Europe in the 16 and 1700s when aristocracy were the only people that could afford to have lawn. They could pay people to trim them by hand and with scythes, but you'd need a lot of people to do that because there were no lawnmowers. And around 18... 37, if I remember my date correctly, uh, the real mower was invented in England, and it was really clunky. And then over the course of the next 100 years, the lawnmower evolved to the point by World War II that it was being mass-produced, and it was cheap and easy to use. So in that 100-year period, I think there's a number of events that inspired middle-class America to really pursue having lawns. And that really kicked into high gear after World War II when some of the post-World War II developments like Levittown started putting lawns in their developments. And so it was kind of considered what you do for a suburban, what became suburbia. And so everyone just kind of went along with it. And then advertising and promotion from lawn care companies kicked into high gear post-World War II. And that's, in a nutshell, how we ended up where we are. Mm. It's actually pretty eye-opening <laughs> to learn of this history and how initially it might have been seen as a luxury. And for some reason, we're kind of so socialized to always want the next best thing or people want what they can't have. So what we view as luxury, that's the next thing that I want to be able to have. And today, I guess lawns have just been normalized that a lot of people haven't questioned why is this the norm and start to see if there are better ways of managing our landscapes. And just to emphasize how large of an impact our lawns added together have had, grass is actually the largest irrigated crop in the United States. And I was really surprised when I heard that. But I'm aware that in some places, the water used to irrigate lawns is gray water. So some people might think that the water use isn't so bad because it's recycling used water anyway. I'm curious how you think lawns hold water and affect the water cycle after irrigation differently compared to meadows, if there is any difference there. Yeah, you know, that's something that I don't believe has been studied in great depth. But my understanding is that there's a pretty vast difference. And the few studies that are out there shows that there's a significant difference with mowing the ground that is below the grass is much more prone to compaction simply from mowing, but also from only being covered by you know two or three inches of turf. So sun and heat can get in there and the ground ends up being more prone to compaction. Meadows have the opposite effect in that there's so much soil life, and that's sort of that's in contrast to lawns that tend to have very little soil life, microbial life in the soil. Organic lawns are somewhat better. Chemical lawns are awful in that, that they basically destroy soil life, and that contributes to that compaction. Meadows encourage soil life, which includes earthworms and larger invertebrates like that, as well as small rodents and a lot of different critters that actually get into the soil and between those and then the really small microorganisms and things like mycelium, 
meadows tend to be to have lofty soil. So what I'm getting at is that meadows can absorb rain much, much better than most lawns. And lawns are infamous for the runoff that they create because a lot of times it's laden with very strong fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, and also toxic chemicals like pesticides and herbicides. Mm. And are the root systems of meadows usually more extensive and deeper as well as a part of being able to hold more water? Yes, absolutely. And that also ties into carbon sequestration as well. Meadow plants are very, very deep-rooted in many cases. So a lot of native prairie plants in the U.S. Uh, have roots that extend easily 5 or 10 feet into the ground. There are some wow. species that actually go deeper in the range of 15 feet or more. And they're looking for water. So these are plants that can get nutrients in water in really difficult situations and, and get into the soil really far down. And what that also does is allows them to sequester large amounts in, of carbon deep into the earth, which turf grass can't do. And turf grass usually has incredibly shallow roots, especially if it's fertilized. But the mowing encourages the roots to not go deep. And then fertilizer even sort of strengthens that effect even more because the roots have no incentive to go down looking for nutrients. Right. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about water conservation, most of the focus is on water use. And that's certainly an important element and an important part of the equation. But a lot of people don't think about the condition of the soil, the species of plants that are planted there, and how well they're able to be resistant to droughts. So a lot of the focus is on the water itself and not on the conditions of how well that ecosystem is able to soak up like a sponge that water that does end up there. Absolutely. And ultimately, I think people have a very poor understanding of how critical soil health is to just life on this planet in general. All of the food that we eat and all of the environments around us that have plants growing on them, it's due to what's happening in the soil and having soil that can support plant life. So people basically just haven't been educated. Nobody's explained any of this to them, including the aspect with lawns that leads to runoff and shallow roots and issues like that. So what you're calling for is for more people to turn their lawns into meadows. Meadows are defined as grasslands by Oxford languages, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but if meadows consist of grass and lawns also consist of grass, what is it that makes lawns what they are and degenerative compared to meadows which are regenerative? Yeah, so lawns require large amounts of inputs. They need mowing, they need fertilizer in a lot of cases, they need chemicals to keep pests away when people are trying to create, you know, perfect, quote unquote, perfect monocrop lawns. And they require a lot of fossil fuels in general to keep all of that going. So meadows are the opposite in that once they're planted and established, they really require very, very little, almost nothing. They have to be mowed once a year. And they're regenerative in that they are able to sustain themselves by either self-seeding or the plants spread by runners. And so meadows are able to keep themselves going year in, year out. Whereas a lawn, if you don't take care of it, of course, it degenerates quickly. 
So they're very uh, they're very different, and they essentially operate on different ends of the spectrum, ecologically speaking. Mm. And when you say that meadows usually require mowing once in the year, does that kind of speak to the role that hooved animals might play in the wild and how they they play that role of mowing in the wild ecosystem? Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple factors that keep meadows meadow. And in areas where there are natural grasslands, fire and herbivores, grazing animals, are two of the most common reasons why woody plants don't overtake grasslands. The other one is rainfall. So in areas where there's less rainfall, it becomes difficult for woody plants like shrubs and trees to establish and overtake grasslands. So the Great Plains are are a good example of that because they are able to sustain themselves. That grassland is self-sustaining because of the levels of rainfall, but also historically because of the millions of bison that would graze it. So this is why when we're talking about smaller privatized land that we're turning into meadows, we might need to step in as that role for that mowing once a year. And so given all of this in mind, what usually holds people back from initiating this change, given that there are so many benefits, such as meadows being low maintenance, which is also just kind of a synonym to it being more self-sustaining and regenerative? Meadows are really alluring from a lot of different angles, including beauty. And definitely in regard to regeneration and helping ecosystems, the amount of impact a small meadow can have locally in supporting pollinators and generally contributing to the food chain is is significant. I think the major impediment is that people are used to lawns. It's a cultural norm. It's something that people haven't questioned much and they um, a lot of times are sort of wedded to the idea, not necessarily for dogmatic reasons, but simply because they're ubiquitous and we're used to them. I think people ultimately struggle with significant change, and we've come to see lawns as normal. So I would say more than anything, that's that education is the driving force that can alter that and I think open people's minds to shifting away from having lawns that they don't use. I you know, always encourage people to keep lawn if they have kids or if they're going to play on it. And lawns are great for pathways and certain functional aspects. But in general, there's a huge amount of lawn, probably 80%. I'm just throwing out a number off the top of my head, but a massive amount of lawn in this country that doesn't actually get used. And I think if people knew more most people would be open to it. There is, of course, a diehard percentage of people who really just love lawns and want to keep lawns. But most people, I don't think, are, are that dogmatic about it. And they just don't know any different. Lost my wings, can't fly. Give me some faith. There's a sickness inside of me. You run so deep. I don't know how to heal the pain. It fills me with hate. It's a weakness I can't fight. It comes in the night. It won't leave me alone like a dark shadow. I need angels. I need angels. 
For a lot of other changes, oftentimes cost or the need to spend a lot of time on something might get in the way. But I'm curious whether these are as big of a concern when talking about transforming lawns into meadows and what the general process of this transformation might look like for somebody. Over the course of time, meadows are going to be cheaper than a carefully maintained lawn. You're not going to have to pay for the mowing. You're not going to have to pay for the resources that go into the lawn. And certainly it's going to free up a large amount of time as well, whether you're paying other people to take care of your lawn or you're doing it yourself. It's a, it's a large time commitment. So meadows um, really require a fairly small amount of input once they're established. The input that they do need is in establishing them. And the best way to do it is to take things, take the area that you're turning into a meadow down to bare soil. And usually I encourage people to do that by successive rototilling, basically turning lawn under and doing it two or three times over the course of a couple weeks. One thing I've been playing with lately is using a sod cutter and stripping out the grass and composting it and then using a tiller after that. What happens after you till once is the seeds that are in the area that you're tilling will sprout. So usually a second tilling is really helpful in getting rid of those. But basically you want to get a blank slate without weeds, without grass, if possible, to set the stage for putting in meadow seeds that you've chosen that are able to match the conditions of the site. Mm -hmm. So I focus on native plants because they've been adapting over the course of thousands of years to the conditions that we're dealing with here in the United States. And if the plants are matched to the site conditions, then they will establish readily. The thing with perennial plants from seed is that they can take a little while to establish. It can take two or three years. And in the short term, when there's bare soil, I encourage people to put down what I call a nurse crop, which is basically an annual cover crop in the first year that just helps cover up the exposed soil and provide protection for the seeds and keep erosion from happening. Right. I was going to mention people upkeep lawns today in all sorts of environments, in places that have drier climates, places that rain a lot, places that are colder or hotter. So when we're talking about transforming lawns into meadows, it also requires some knowledge about what species are suited to grow in that environment. And like you mentioned, maybe looking to native species is always somewhat of a safe choice, um, provided that bioregional climate hasn't changed too much with climate change. Exactly. That's a fairly safe direction to look in. And fortunately, meadow species tend to be pretty adaptable to a pretty wide range of extremes, which is really suitable for climate change conditions that we're dealing with now all over the country, where sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. All sorts of regions are dealing with conditions that they don't usually get. And meadows are one of the more resilient ecosystems when it comes to that sort of thing. And matching the species to the existing site and the existing site conditions is really, really important in terms of creating a low-maintenance, long-lasting meadow. Are there any parts of the world, I'm sure the answer is probably yes, but where meadows just don't make any sense at all, given the local climate? 
you know, meadows really can't grow in arid areas where there's under 20 inches of rain. It's not to say that flowering plants in meadow-like environments can't be created, but meadows really need sustained, some degree of sustained moisture throughout the course of the year for them to thrive. So there are meadows that are dry meadows, especially in places like California, that are able to exist with very little water. But most of those places still get 20 inches or more of rainfall over the course of a year. So it's kind of the cutoff point. And deserty places like the American Southwest, it's pretty hard to get meadows, traditional looking meadows to grow. So conventional gardening applies a great sense of control over the landscape where it might be primarily about curating specific looks based on what whatever the garden gardener wants the garden to look like. A lot of regenerative gardening people are drawn to more or less aiding the landscape to simply best express themselves and playing that role of a helper, but mostly letting the garden do its thing after a while. Your work, based on my understanding, sort of does both because you are a landscape designer, but you also focus on regeneration. So how do you go about balancing your desire to realize some vision that you have for the landscape with some sort of design that you have in mind with your understanding that meadows, as you say, is what can happen when you give the earth a chance to heal itself? Yeah, with meadows specifically, the combination of that sort of uh, intended effect in conjunction with what wants to happen naturally on its own is really an effect that can be gained by matching the species choices to the site conditions in combination with a couple basic design criteria. So for instance, with most meadows, I'm focused on plants that are two to four feet tall. Meadows can be much taller. They can even be shorter, but there's sort of a sweet spot in terms of what people expect a meadow to look like. And also, if they're too tall, then it's actually hard for a person to stand next to them and see it because we can't see over them. So there's a couple basic things like that that come into play. Um, another one is having a flowering sequence occur over the course of the growing season so that there can be color throughout the year. And also having plants that are same the same height or similar heights is really important so that one species doesn't dominate others. If plants are basically the same height, they tend to play nicely with each other. So I try to factor in a couple of those design criteria into the into the whole meadow making process so that the aesthetic can still be in a direction that a client or a situation you know, a site is calling for. At the same time, you know, I'm really honoring the pre-existing conditions. So what you said earlier about really melding those two styles of gardening is very central to the work that I do. You say that with these meadows, the pests do start to come in and the weeds start to come in as well. But do you find that the intention of building meadows fundamentally changes how one looks at environmental nuisances, such as so-called pests and weeds? Yes, and I think that is one of the big challenges with people in regard to shifting towards creating a meadow, is that it takes a different type of perspective when when looking at the plants and the process of the meadow establishing and growing. It's a perspective that most people haven't been taught, aren't familiar with, and in a lot of cases, 
don't have any confidence in. Because meadows are slow to establish, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking sometime in the first year because weeds will usually grow. And they're brought in by seed. Uh, they fi- weeds generally find their way to a site one way or another, even if you eliminate them all at first. And it takes a little while sometimes for the meadow species to get ahead of them and then dominate. So trusting the nature and that these seeds and these meadow plants can do the job that we want them to do is something that takes time and also a certain level of education and awareness so that people can trust that it's going to work. And I think as a designer, a lot of my job is is uh, helping clients understand that that's the case. Mm. Another way that people have been going about personally combating climate change and also addressing food insecurity is through growing backyard victory gardens, growing some of their own food in the place of lawns. So certainly it doesn't have to be either or, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on when one option makes more sense for someone over the other, or if there's a way to combine the two concepts of victory gardens and meadows. I guess some of it's just based on how much space people have have available, but both are excellent solutions in their own respective ways. Victory Gardens cut down on carbon usage for shipping and producing vegetables, and they allow you to get food that's grown right in your backyard that's incredibly fresh and healthier, ultimately. So they also can, if you're doing composting, there's the ability to sequester carbon. So there's a huge advantage there. And I don't see them in opposition to meadows. It's really a spatial issue. And if you have enough space, you can do both because a victory garden can produce a large amount of food in a relatively small amount of space. And even a small meadow can be very effective at sequestering carbon and attracting pollinators and wildlife. So they they can happen hand in hand. I know for me personally, stories and especially visuals of land restoration and regeneration always really inspires and moves me. Through your landscape design and consulting work at Abound Design or your personal experiences, what are some of the most inspiring projects of regeneration that you've helped and witnessed? One of the uh, people who gave a blurb on the back of the book is Dr. John Todd, and his work is a huge source of inspiration for me because he's been working with plants as a way to create a healthier environment and clean up some of the mess that we've created as humans. And he's had great success with some of what he's uh, been playing around with. He invented uh, the concept of living machines and using plants to clean wastewater and gray water. And other people have worked on that, but he's definitely at the tip of the spear in regard to that work. So that type of experimentation that John Todd has done really points to how plants and restoration work can clean up the the mess that we've made. Another example is the work of Paul Stamets with mycology. And one of the specific experiments that he did was using oyster mushrooms to clean up diesel spills. Mm -hmm. And it was diesel, heavily contaminated soil that was put into berms and different people were allowed to uh, experiment 
on different remediation techniques. The I think it was the Washington State Department of Transportation facilitated this, and Paul Stamets used oyster mushrooms. And what happened was they are able to break down hydrocarbons and turn them into inert molecules. And then the mushrooms would fruit, and that brought in birds and insects, and then the birds brought in seeds and his uh, berm that he was experimenting with became biologically viable in a very short period of time. So those are two examples of how restoration can have a massive impact and I find very, very inspiring. So earlier you mentioned uh, this cultural norm of having lawns being a challenge that we face when we're trying to get more people to turn our lawns into meadows. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we might be able to approach changing this cultural norm and expectation. So there's a number of ways that we can make that happen. And the the primary approach is education and outreach. As I've mentioned a couple times, the average American doesn't even know that there's other options outside of having a lawn. So it's something that they haven't even heard of, let alone considered. So getting that information out into the world is terribly important because a lot of people, upon hearing the detrimental effect that lawns have, which is very significant across the board, and when they see that in contrast with the effect that meadows can have, which is a very beneficial significantly beneficial effect when it comes to sequestering carbon and the lack of resources required and habitat created for pollinators and other animals. Um, they're very beneficial. So I think if, if people know that, that can go a very, very long way. Another aspect that wins people over is beauty. If they see a meadow that's actually really beautiful, then that can be as convincing as anything. So those are two two examples that come to mind. And I think another aspect that's worth mentioning is that it's hard to convince people who are diehards. Mm -hmm. So focusing on people who really are wedded to their lawns is probably not going to be a productive focus. But most people don't, don't have that level of allegiance. And just generally doing workshops, uh, putting out flyers, signs. If you were to put up, put a meadow in your own front yard, you could put up a sign and that could help educate people. So really just getting the word out and letting people know the whys of why of, uh, you know, the importance of meadows that I think will make the biggest difference. And as we look ahead into the future, what is your vision for what we might be able to achieve by transforming our lawns into meadows at a collective scale? If even a fraction of that area that is presently lawn, an area the size of Washington State, if that was transformed, 10% of it was transformed toward to meadow, that would immediately provide so much more habitat to pollinators and other animals and conserve a significant amount of resources, fossil fuels, chemicals, fertilizers, all these things wouldn't be required on that area. So it might seem like just transforming a single yard into a meadow doesn't really have that big of an impact, but it's really not the case. We're talking, an example would be monarch butterflies, where 
They're down on the West Coast. They're about 1% of the population level that historically has existed. And if they dip any lower, entomologists believe that they might reach a point of no return. While that's happening, I have clients who, and I think I mentioned this in the book, there's a client of mine who simply let common milkweed grow in her garden and she didn't pull it out. And that fall, we counted 50 chrysalises that had hatched that were monarch chrysalises. And that's just in this one tiny little bed. So that's an example of how this can all add up. And the numbers really are significant in terms of how much water and energy and chemicals we can keep from wasting. Really, really inspiring. And we, of course, want to invite our listener to take part in this movement as well. So what are some of your final concrete action steps that you'd like for them to start taking to support this initiative of Lawns to Meadows? I think the outreach component is enormous. And if people can participate in educating themselves and then sharing that with other people, I think that's what's going to change the public perception around lawns. And I'd also encourage people to do it in their own yard to transform their lawn into meadow and to step away from having areas of lawn that are used, I mean, excuse me, that are not used. And that's the point that we're really focused on is that if you use your lawn, if you have kids and you're playing soccer on it or whatever, then you want to keep that part. But there's so many parts of our yard that we literally never even walk in. And for a lot of people, they never go in their yard at all. So those areas, if people can start transforming them, that right there starts to change the tide. So I'd encourage people to really look at doing that themselves and making that happen in their own yard. And for people that don't, that aren't landowners, are there any ways that we might be able to get our local universities or public spaces and things like that to take this approach as well? Absolutely. And that falls a little bit into the education and outreach area, but it also falls into a category where people can just take on projects and initiate projects. I've done a lot of that myself. I helped start a nonprofit a few years ago with a focus on creating public garden spaces and restoration work that's done by volunteers. And there's a lot of people who want to help out with that sort of thing. So even just kind of uh, focusing on an area where there is lawn, say it could be in front of your public library, your town hall, or an abandoned lot in your neighborhood, meadows can be created all over the place. And it doesn't have to be your own property. You just have to gain access to it. And sometimes even just putting in a planter on a deck on the third floor of your building, wherever you have access to being outside or window boxes and you put a couple meadow plants in there, that actually, those plants get found by pollinators. And so even if it's a tiny space that you're dealing with, that can help too. 
Well, we are coming towards a close here, but Green Dreamer, you can check out Owen's work at www.owenwormser.net and also at abounddesign.com. You can also find his book, Lawns into Meadows, at stonepeerpress.org. And all of these links will be shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Owen, we appreciate you so much. Thank you for sharing your story and inspirations here with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say something that probably is a little bit cliched, but absolutely true. And that is that if you want to have an impact and make a difference in regard to how people live on this earth and how we treat the planet itself and the environment, that just start with what's in front of you and start where you can. And it's a learning process to do any anything that has to anything to do with regeneration and healing the planet. And we don't know a lot about it. So don't be intimidated by that and just start in where you can with what you can and keep learning. And I would really encourage people to, to do that if that's what they're inclined to do and to not be limited by their lack of knowledge, but to just jump in and see what they can make happen. Well, we've come full circle and are coming to a close here. I know you hear me say this in every episode, but having your direct support as the listener is really important for our independent platform to continue and for us to be able to continue exploring a lot of these topics often sidelined by mainstream media, which in the US, 90% of media is controlled by just six corporations, which I think is pretty problematic and why I personally try to always financially support the independent outlets that I read and listen to. So I highly encourage you to do that as well, whether it's, you know, Green Dreamer or other independent media platforms that you learn from. I highly recommend supporting these outlets financially if you're able to. So again, if you can, I'd love to invite you to join us on Patreon starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is I Need Angels by Adrian Sutherland, and I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking this time to learn with us, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. I need angels, I need angels.